everybody. Welcome to this episode of the What's Next podcast, where I have the pleasure of welcoming Jim Eichner to the show. He is honorary professor at Aston Business University and editor-in-chief of Research Technology Management. He was previously vice president of global innovation at Goodyear Tire and Rubber Company, where he led the development of new business and helped launch five businesses on three continents. Prior to his work at Goodyear, he held positions as vice president of growth strategy innovation at Pitt and Bowes, as well at Bell Atlantic. But he has a new book out called Lean Startup in Large Organizations, which came out earlier in 2022. And I was excited to talk to him because we have had a number of lean startup people on the show, but I love the fact that he is a reflective practitioner, meaning he's done the job and talks about it. So welcome to the show, Jim. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Well, we are going to start out with something I call bullish and bearish. It is nothing, uh, hopefully nothing too painful, (laughs) (laughs) but we will ask, or I will ask three questions, bullish you're for it, bearish you're against it, just some fun places to start. All right. Ready? Yeah. Okay. All right. The first one, bullish or bearish, autonomous vehicles. I'm bullish on autonomous vehicles, although I think we still have a ways to go before they're finally realized, but I'm bullish about the potential. Okay. All right. The next one, I'm, I'm actually interested to hear what you'll, what you'll say. These new, the new sort of self-inflating tires, you know, the ones that just won't pop. Yeah, so there are two things. There are self-inflating tires, and then there are tires that are airless tires. They are tires that are non-pneumatic, they're called. And I think eventually they will come to, uh, come to pass. And I don't know whether it will be mixed up in the evolution of vehicles from uh, internal combustion to EV vehicles, but I think, that they will, I think that they will emerge. So bullish. I'm bullish on it. They're emerging in some sectors already. All right, so. and, and I'm going to keep the theme. Flying cars, bullish or bearish? Bearish on flying cars. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I would love to have them. I just don't see them as a great use of our energy. But <laughs> or or airspace. <laughs> yes. Yes. God it's, help us. You know yeah. what? I, right. Exactly. Like I'm already nervous about drones coming over my house and dropping packages. I see so many things going wrong with that. But yes. anyway, um, so let's dive right in because you know, listen, lean startup created this whole movement decades ago, you know, I've had Steve Blank on the show. I've had Alex Osterwalder on the show. Um, and, and I think that it's one of those topics that maybe not everybody, including myself, really has a grasp of what lean startup actually means. Would you mind sort of starting there for us so we can ground everyone? Sure. I, I think lean startup is in some ways, it's just saying that innovation is about learning. And it has a few principles that are about how you learn. And then a few other principles about what you learn. And then uh, one principle, which is innovation accounting, how you keep track. So the principles that focus on how you learn are lean learning loops, or I sometimes call them business experiments. They're analogous to experiments from science labs. You have a hypothesis, you design an experiment to test it, you run the experiment, and you see what happened. And as you learn, you iterate. Uh, So... Lean learning loops are at the heart of how you learn. And the most commonly known part of Lean Startup is the minimum viable product. And the minimum viable product, whether it's a prototype of some sort or an actual usable product, is the the vehicle by which you do your experiment. So that's that's what Lean Startup is about. There are sort of three things. The second thing is what you learn. And the three things that you learn are 
Uh, what really is the customer value proposition? How can you create value for a customer? And then the second thing is, what is the business model? What's your theory about how the business will uh, be will generate profit? And the third is the growth hypothesis. How do you go from small scale to large scale? So in, in some sense, it's all how you learn or what you learn. And, uh, and I think the idea of a learning approach to innovation is just essential. Uh, whether you use the exact same terms or not is, is not so important. Well, but each of those, it, it, correct me if I'm wrong, each of those, and, and for those of you listening, sort of minimal viable product, you sometimes hear referred to MVP. So in case you yes. see that acronym, yes. but there are multiple critical, highly differentiated skills in each of those actions you just said, right? Like being yes. able to do those things, like having the curiosity. So to try, then failing, then iterating, then creating MVP, then growth strategy. I mean, those are very different skill sets. So how yes. do you how do you create an environment where I'm doubt I doubt I'm doubtful once again. I, I'm learning here with you along along with you is how do you pull a team together or is this sitting with one person? Yeah, it's a team. In in my experience, it's a team. I'm sure there are people who can who have the ability to uh, manage all aspects of it. But in general, in large corporations, we had a group of people at the front end who mainly had skills from design and customer insight and some prototyping skills because they're trying to learn about customers. And those skills are not common in many large corporations. They're observational research. They're rapid prototyping. And then we had a separate set of people with have, which have different skills in what we call business model innovation, but they have to have a deep knowledge in how business models tick, what I consider to uh, talk about as the archetypes of business models. And they have to be very good at doing rapid experimentation. So again, they're experimenting not around the customer need, but around the channel or the, uh, or the cost structure or uh, the partnership relationships. They have to have a, an ability to do a lot of experiments quickly and learn from them. And then you usually, oftentimes, when you move into incubation, when you're actually in market, you need a different person to lead it than you had leading the innovation part. And you may have to refactor the team, to use a software term. So uh, I believe that there are, you're absolutely right, there are a whole bunch of skills that you need to get good at. There's a mindset also, and the mindset is learning. And it's learning, being honest with yourself about what you learn. It's being out in the world. Uh, Steve Blank, I'm sure, talked to you about that, getting data that you can't get by sitting behind your desk. Yeah, and I, and I think that's where many people miss the connection, especially at the leadership ranks, right? They have this idea of what they think that the company should do, could do, needs to do for whatever reason. Yes. Could be that, you know, all of a sudden they believe we need to go after a blue ocean, right? We're trapped in a red ocean. Yeah. But the culture doesn't actually have, isn't innovative in and of itself, right? It could be a very status quo environment. So if you're listening to this and you, you're a startup, a small business, this next line of questions is probably not necessarily relevant for you, but it will be as you get larger. But, but I think that ultimately where I see uh, many companies fail is, is, is in this internal inertia of 
an executive has this idea of what should happen, then they have no idea how to actually pull a team together, or they're not willing to put the resources, time, metrics, money, and by the way, freedom to fail. Yes. <laughs> you know, in, in an environment that allows people to feel like, oh, wait a second, this is going to be different, right? Culturally, for us to try to find this innovative mindset. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And that is, you, you know, sometimes people think of it pejoratively, but we have to remember that the core business is there to make the money that funds the innovation as well as, uh, you know, rewards the shareholders and so forth. It is, uh, it has to be designed and it's usually optimized to run the current business and the current business model. And everybody in the organization is incentivized to do that. When you decide to uh, innovate outside your core, which is where I focused, beyond with new business models and new revenue streams, you're going to run up against that, uh, what Govinda Rajan calls the performance engine, um, again and again. And a lot of my book is about how do you live in that world? How do you both sort of honor and acknowledge the role that the core business is playing and still be able to do what you need to do. And again, that happens both at the working level and at the executive level. So at the working level, you know, you're, you get resistance because people find it chaotic or disruptive to their operations or distracting of their operations. If you're an IP lawyer and someone wants to go out and show something to, uh, you know, to customers before you've even patented it, They'll have anxiety. If you want to do an experiment that might raise a liability risk, some people there will have experiments. If you're in sales and you're going to go talk to my customers, I get nervous just because you're going to go talk to them. So <laughs> managing that uh, interface is, uh, is an important part of what you need to do as an innovator, not to just bemoan it, but to get involved and say, okay, I understand your concern. Let's talk about how we can move forward. So that's just at the, you know, the core sort of how we learn uh, level. It's how do you get the experiments done? Well, you've come from two very large organizations, you know, one in uh, one in Goodyear and, and one in um, Pitney. Yeah. And, and then also sort of Bell Atlantic, right, which is yes. now Verizon. And so if you have seen a really great approach for an individual to go to leadership and be like, I think here's yeah. this need, here's what we need to solve. I've been talking to customers because I think one of the biggest things that is missed is not only does the culture not have the ability to understand what innovation means, but executives don't leave their, you know, the four walls. And so they're not out enough to yeah, know yeah. that there's really this pain, right? They're, they're managing from an Excel spreadsheet uh, or reports that land on their desk uh, not from the front line, right? right um, so they may right. not agree that there's even a need for whatever it is that this person sort of flags up and says, I think we need, right? Um, when, ha Where have you seen or how have you seen someone be able to influence yes. executives or their leaders or their managers, right, to allow them to take a shot at trying something different? Yeah, there, I think there are a number of things that you can do. One of them is come with data. You indicated this already as part of your question. If you do your homework, if you do the basics on the customer insight work, and you do the uh, experiments around the channel and around different aspects of the business model, then when you're reviewing it with an executive, you're not coming with theories, you're coming with data. 
if someone asks a question, well, why do you think customers want that? Because eight out of 10 that we spoke with expressed an interest in this direction. If they think, well, that channel will never work. You say, well, 4% of the people uh, in our experiment did respond to this offer. You have data. And that changes the conversation from your opinion versus my opinion to the data. And maybe people want more data. Maybe you're, you've got too little at this point. But that's a very different thing to say, how do we get more data than it is to say, I don't believe you. Uh, you know, I don't think you're right, or my opinion is different from yours. So I think that somehow setting up a forum where you have leaders meeting with the team periodically, maybe every two months or something, and reviewing what we know and what we've learned and what we're going, what we think we need to learn next, that can be a very productive uh, thing to do. Another thing that I think is very productive, and a lot of companies don't do it, is to decide on the areas you want to innovate. So figure out the opportunity spaces that you think you have a right to win in. Usually that's because you're leveraging some asset that already exists for you. At Goodyear, for example, we heavily leveraged the existing uh, service infrastructure that we had to move into new businesses with advanced services and uh, you know tires as a service and so forth. So one thing is to say, where do we not only have permission to innovate, but where do we have a right to win? And can we get agreement on that beforehand so that when we sit down and talk about it, you know, it's relevant to you? So that I think that's a critical item. Another, uh, another thing to do is to structure yourself for growth. You know, so to think about the fact that if we keep all these things intermingled, then uh, if you, we keep the core business uh, trying to operate with this as just a project within it, it's probably going to fail because it's going to challenge the business model the operations, the fear about funding, et cetera. So uh, having a sort of separate but connected model where you're separate in that you have independence, but you're connected so you can leverage the assets of the business. Those are, those are a couple of principles that I think work very well. Yeah, there was a client I was working with in uh, Sydney. It was a large bank and they had an innovation lab and you may go, oh, well, that's great. You know, Tiffany, I'm listening to this. You know, Jim and you were talking about it. I work for a very small company. I can't, quote unquote, afford an innovation lab. So let me let me describe what it was just in the next mm -hmm. minute is, yes, it was multi-billion dollar company, but this innovation lab was like three people. Mm -hmm. It was like a scrum designer, right? Yes. A change yeah. management and, you know, and sort of somebody who was kind of pulling the concept together. The rest of the team, quote unquote, was borrowed from parts of the organization. So tellers, right? Phone, you know, call center people, middle manager, they didn't go as high as leader, right? They tried to yeah. keep it in the front line, if you will, uh, level. And they would come in and they would process map, okay, someone opening a checking account or a savings yeah. account or getting a mortgage or, you know, whatever it was. And the team would work to solve those problems. And then could we develop a little app? Is there something out there? And so the innovation yeah. lab actually started developing solutions um, in this little isolation. And then when it kind of passed muster, right? MVP went out, people tried it, and then it would you know, launch into the rest of the organization. But what they did, which I found fascinating, and this is one that tends to be a different approach, is they would rotate that the internal team, not the core team that ran the innovation center, but they would rotate the team every quarter. And at first people were like, oh, I felt like it was a demotion. Like I didn't want to go sit in the innovation yeah. lab. 
And then by the time the second or third quarter came around, there was a list a hundred deep of people wanting to go in because they wanted to participate in making their job better. So I give that to the listeners uh, as an idea of it doesn't need to be some big expensive activity, but you have to create an environment by which people are protected from their day-to-day productivity, I'm guessing, right? And the metrics yes, and all that goes yeah. with that and allow them the ability to participate in the design of their own day-to-day. Yeah, I think something like that can work very well as long as the people who are seconded to that function have that as a priority and not as a second or third priority. Because what happens then is people just aren't available when they're needed. I, I also I like the idea of working on people doing participative design of their own work and uh, prototyping it. You'd like to see if you're taking the lean startup a little further, you'd make prototypes and get it out into the into some users' hands uh, very early in the process because you're probably going to learn something that uh, you didn't anticipate in doing it. But I very much like that idea, and it also creates ambassadors out to the core business. Sometimes when people do that, they um, they assign people, but they don't unassign them from their old job, and therefore they're pulled in two directions, and and it's up to them to manage the conflict. Yeah, this was this was actually they were relieved of their quote unquote day to day duty with no impact to pay and all of those things, right? So all it did was, to your point, relieve them of feeling like they had to do their job and they did this part time. This was literally, and that's why I think initially people were nervous. Yes. You know, of, of, yeah. of, of, wait a minute. Like if I give up my job, will my job be there when I get back? Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and, and then they invited people in to pitch ideas and come up with, they created a whole community around it. So this sort of co-innovation between external and internal teams, it, it was really a fascinating opportunity. But then when they, you know, sort of look at the results back, uh, some of the, you know, metrics around the things they launched sped up times for customers, you know, relieved effort for employees. I mean, it was really a great little case study I got to to witness yes. um, in real yeah. time that that I use as a great example that it doesn't have to be something big and massive and expensive. Yeah. And I would say I, I like that. And I like it also because you, now you have all these people who have uh, experience over time with innovation. I, I would divide innovation into two types. One type one, I would call it is the type that uh, doesn't challenge the existing business model. It's process innovation, like the like what you just talked about. It's new product innovation inside your core business. It's uh, product line extensions, that type of thing. The other, which is, you know, doesn't have to happen all the time inside corporations, is creating a new business or a new business model, and that always challenges. That's much harder. Uh, people still get. Uh, I think the the case you described is a very good case of people engaging the act, actual people doing the work in designing a new process and making improvements with technology to that process. The fortunate thing for them is if you can free them up and if they do a good job, it's going to be embraced by the organization because it makes life better. When you're building a new business, you often run into resistance, even if it's a good business, because there are fears that it will only appear to be good because it will cannibalize the core business, or there are fears that it will uh, start sucking resources as, as you grow it from the core business that people believe are needed for the core business. So it's a, uh, you know, I think the two types of innovation need to be managed very differently. Uh, both of them need to be focused on customers. Both of them need 
participation. Both of them need learning agendas. Both of them need prototyping. But the issues in, in dealing with the organizational uh, world are different. You know, I wonder if uh, if you take this one step further, and I and I want to really double click into that business model because I think that gets a little misunderstood as well. Sure, it does. Yeah. F- for example, you know, I I many gazillion years ago when I first started selling technology, actually, I was selling into the legal industry, uh, and uh, we were selling everything that was required to hand bait stamp scan and code millions and millions of documents. And so we got bought by R.R. Donnelly, which was mm-hmm. sort of a computer a, a com, a competitor of Pitney Bowes. And it was a shift in a business model and I watched it happen. And, you know, I didn't understand it. I was very early in my career, you know, but all yes. of a sudden it was, no, now we are going to put staff on site. We are going to manage, we're going to take this off your hands and we're going to pick up the full life cycle of, you know, printing, scanning, coding, bait stamping, and then- yes organizing it and all of those things that went into it. And so that was a natural, from the core, a natural adjacency. And the business model was different, if you will, because it got into people instead of hardware and software. But I, I think that people don't understand that transition. So I don't know if you have a story at, at either Goodyear or Pitney or yeah. one of the other places you were at where, you know, let's take tires, for example, you know, people would be like, okay, it's tires. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, it's a product. It's a product, you know, and you could argue it's a commoditized product. I'm not making that. Yeah, you could argue yeah. that. You could argue <laughs> yeah. it. I'm not, I'm not saying it is or it isn't. I'm saying yeah. that, you know, you have a lot of yeah. choice and then unless you're really a tire person, right? It's like, yes. they kind of, okay, all right. So I don't, I don't want to offend anyone, but what would be a business model example shift for someone that has a product like that, right? Where it is, and they have market share, but forget that for just a second, that it's just a product. And then what is that adjacency business model idea? So one example from uh, Goodyear was moving from, for commercial tires, for the trucks, the tires that go on trucks that carry freight, uh, goods, products and goods, uh, going from selling the tire to selling uh, actionable advice about the tire. So by that, I mean, if you're a long haul trucker, you're far away from home and you have a breakdown due to a, a tire uh, issue, then that's very expensive for you. It's expensive because you got to get something fixed by the side of the road. It's expensive because you might miss your just in time delivery slot. Your driver might time out of their uh, allowable driving time. So there are a lot of consequential damages for that. So in this case, we monitored tires in real time. And we found that we could predict uh, when a tire might fail 80% of the time, two days in advance. So if we were able, we were able to tell people, this is your situation. You either have an immediate concern, in which case for safety reasons, pull over and we'll send a truck to fix it. Or you've got an issue, but you've got to deal with it today. You know, you don't have to deal with it until you finish your job or you've just got a routine maintenance issue. That prevents huge amounts of breakdowns. It saves a lot of money per vehicle per year. And it, it's well beyond the cost of the tire itself. Do you see what I'm saying? So from a tire company, you may say, well, wait a second. We would sell a tire when there's a breakdown or we would sell service when there's a breakdown. From a customer's point of view, you're helping their larger business. And that helps you not only generate independent revenue, but also 
build a relationship with the customer that lets you pull through product. That's a business model shift that's different enough that it's got to be sold by a different sales force in coordination with the tire sales force. The operations are completely different. The revenue stream comes from a uh, from uh, a services revenue, uh, you know, periodic revenue rather than when you buy the tire. So it's a completely different business model. And so that's an example. It doesn't have to completely supplant the old model, but it supplements it in this case and still has to be managed very carefully. Yeah. And, and I think that's the natural, right? People immediately go, okay, what's the wraparound service? Right, right, right. Right. Yes. I mean, that's the natural, you know, and you're either going to do it yourself or you're going to find a channel, right? A group of partners or a network right. that you can leverage, et cetera. What about from a, what about from a product standpoint, like an actual, you know, another hard product, right? A, not a human service product. How do you say, I'm once again, I'm totally making this up, but you may say, okay, we, we do so well on, you know, long haul tires. We're going to go to, you know, car tires, which obviously, you know, yeah, your has. and then, yeah. right. And then, and then you may say, okay, we're going to go to moped tires or we're going to go to razor tires. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, yeah. do you, do you keep going down that stack saying, can we take our brand and our leverage? And, and that's the obvious adjacency, or do you well, just say, we're going to go into something totally different? Like, uh, you may they may even do tractor tires, right? You may just go yeah, in a yeah. totally different direction. What what's the way to get to a product differentiation? Well, so the product uh, companies Goodyear and companies like Goodyear have been innovating in product forever, and so they're in any sector they've been, and uh, some of the sectors they've en- exited, but been in many many sectors. To your point tires are increasingly commoditized. When that happens, a product-oriented business model is probably limited in terms of its innovation capability. Someone might have a breakthrough like a non-pneumatic tire, like we talked about at the beginning of the show. They might have a breakthrough that has a, a completely different dimension of value to customers. When that happens, it can be disruptive to the industry. But I think chasing product differentiation when you have exceeded the uh, needs of customers along your traditional dimensions of value probably is not the best use of your investment dollars. Moving into new segments that have growth potential may, um, you know, so should autonomous tire vehicles be the same as traditional vehicles? Should electric vehicles, how do you design them? But you're still, in, in those cases, you're designing a, a tire with essentially the same attributes, but with different balances uh, in them. I think for business model innovation, you've got to look at where's value migrating in my industry and how can I move into that? Yeah. And, and there's so much there, you know, and I think, you know, w- what I hear often is I'm overwhelmed by everything we could do. I don't know if we have the right skills. I don't know if we have the right culture. You know, I don't know if we have the appetite to fail. I don't, you know, I hear a lot of reasons kind of why not. And I'm sure you hear them as well. But if there's one piece of advice as we kind of wrap this up, if you've got, you know, listeners that are like, I've got this great idea. I think we could do it at work. Obviously, besides purchasing your book, uh, Lean Startup and Large Organizations, besides (laughs) that, which, you know, is, is the obvious. But, but what would be your piece of advice besides the, you got to really believe in it, that the sort of, you know, human aspect of it, what's, what's the piece of advice you would give? I think the, 
it's a you know it's a fairly innovation is a fairly complex system. But I would say the advice of the first advice I'd give if you're a leader of a business is to open your mind up to where your opportunities might be. What opportunity spaces are there that at the intersection of how technology is changing, your assets, and uh, and where you can see opportunity. And then I would say, get that team together to go out and learn. Make sure that they're not stuck inside the building, but they're out and not stuck in their homes. They're out in the world learning from customers and have learning reviews with them. Sit down and say, not, well, where are we on this project plan? But what have we learned? What do we now know that we didn't know before? How does it look? Is this going to be positive? Are there any showstoppers? So really embrace the idea of a learning agenda. And that means for executives, they've got to learn also how to ask a different type of question. It's not a question of, are you meeting an objective? Uh, are you on plan? It's a question of, are we learning what we need to learn in order to create a new business? Absolutely. Well, I think that is just fantastic advice, Jim. Thank you so much for joining us here today on the What's Next podcast. How can people stay in touch with you, your work, and sort of go on their own startup, lean startup journey? Yeah, I think you, I'm glad you referenced my book. I have a website called leanstartup.biz and you can follow me there and also on LinkedIn. Fantastic. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed talking to you. What great practical advice from Jim Eichner, the author of Lean Startup and Large Organizations. I hope that helped you uh, as much as it actually helped me. You know, I talk a lot about it, Lean. I talk a lot about innovation and disruption, but when you really get to the brass tacks of it, it comes down to the decisions that we make as leaders, as organizations to ensure our people have the right environment to bring great ideas to life. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the What's Next podcast. Don't forget to subscribe. Uh, leave some feedback, tell your friends. I look forward to you joining me here again next time.